so deep in the night when all the world is quiet someone came and took her lover's life Johanna Johanna where are you now could it be you're still here somehow spooktacular greetings to every single one of you thank you so much for stopping by and taking a listen to paranormal prowlers podcast those tunes are courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. On the ninth day of August, back in 1969, something horrific happened. Innocent lives were brutally taken. A body of a man found in his car, shot to death. In the front lawn are the bodies of a man and a woman, stabbed to death. And you know what? In the home, it doesn't get any better. It just gets a lot worse. More victims. The bodies of a man and a very pregnant woman are found connected by a rope, which is found around each of their necks. They are stabbed to death as well. The man in the car, that's Stephen Parent, who was on the property because he was visiting the property's caretaker at the guest house. The two people on the lawn, Folger Coffee Heiress, Abigail Folger, and aspiring screenwriter Wojciech Frykowski. And the woman and man in the home, very pregnant actress Sharon Tate, and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sabring. The gruesomeness of it all, the events that took place, shocked everybody to their core. It shook a nation. Manson and his murderous gang showed no mercy. You plead for your life? Who cares? You're over eight and a half months pregnant? Big deal. These guys were absolutely monsters, these men and women. Then, after these horrific murders occur, a party is taking place. The murders from the night before are on everyone's minds, and it's the topic of conversation, as I'm sure it was in many people's homes. Rosemary LaBianca expresses sadness over the murders, not knowing that her and her husband Leno, well, they're about to meet the same fate. My friend David Oman is about to join us on this very special episode. David is a producer, creator, co-writer, and author. He is a native of Los Angeles. Oman has been intrigued by the paranormal from his early childhood, and he's been curious about the spirit world ever since. In 1999, David and his father started to build the house on Cielo Drive just down the drive from the infamous Sharon Tate murders, also known as the Manson murders. He just completed his first book, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the Spirits of the Omen House. After two years of living in the house, he created a story based upon his experiences in the home with the activity, titled House at the End of the Drive. It was shot on location of his home and brought his story to life. Since he moved into the house, the activity has been quite apparent, so much so that the Omen house has been on eight paranormal reality shows. Ghost Hunters, Dead Famous Live, Searching for Satan, My Ghost Story, Haunted History, Paranormal Witness, Ghost Adventures, Ghost Adventures Aftershocks. All of these shows the Omen House have been on 
have been the highest rated episodes to date for these series. He ran the Nielsen ratings reports on the shows, and in 10 years, they have aired over 700 times. Absolutely phenomenal. He has also been featured on Larry King Live, Extra, TMZ, and CBS News. His house has also been visited by Lisa Williams and James Van Praagh. Five years ago, he decided to install 19 HD infrared and audio cameras throughout his home. And with doing that, you guys, he has captured some serious evidence of the paranormal. Since then, he has recorded a plethora of evidence of the paranormal and activity at his home. He has his channel at www.youtube.com slash David Oman. That is D-A-V-I-D-O-M-A-N. Go check it out for sure to see the footage shot here at the Omen House. And the book is available only at www.ghostofcielodrive.com. Without further ado, let me welcome my friend David Omen. David Omen, my friend, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. Great. Thank you very much for having me on your show again. My God, it's been a few years since I've been on, but glad to be back. I know, right? Like, time totally flies by. It really does. I was like, wow, I've had the podcast. Actually, in uh, two days, it's the one-year anniversary. So I was like, oh, yeah, it's been well over two years since me and you last had a convo on the old airwaves. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> so how are things going over there in your neck of the canyon? Uh, everything up here at the house on the hill seems to be just dandy as far as the living are concerned. The spirits seem to be quite subdued present day, to be honest with you. It's kind of strange. I didn't think that it would have, that what we're going through presently would have such an effect, but honestly, it's kind of like the, the spirits are like taking a vacay and it's kind of like subdued and re- kind of retracted and quiet here now. Very interesting. Well, they're smart. They're intelligent. They It's almost like they know what's going on. Like, you know, something's off. Yeah, I, like I said, I never, I've never experienced a period here in the house, and I've been here now 18 years, that, how should we say, that's been this quiet and kind of like pro- prolonged sense of stillness. And that's strange. I mean, I've had periods where it's a couple of weeks, maybe a week or two, where the figurines then get knocked over and the house is kind of like, just like on lockdown. I hate to say it like that and thinking about what we're all doing, but it's weird because for the past four weeks, I'd have to say, and I've only had people here like three weeks ago, as a matter of fact, it was active, but after that, it was just back to like docile and quiet and kind of, I don't want to say inconspicuous, but kind of so low key that you would hear a pin drop and I haven't heard a pin drop in three and a half weeks at least. It's strange. I don't know. I don't I've never experienced this before, so I don't know what to make of it personally. It definitely is is something new and different. And maybe it's the fact that the house doesn't have anybody outside of me in here, in the environment. I mean I have not had anybody come into the house and visit in about three and a half weeks now. I, I just sense this kind of like and not an eeriness but a calmness and a quiet, a stillness almost in the house with the activity. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I, you know, things will eventually go back to normal or semi-normal, and I'm sure 
the spirits will let themselves be known again. It is interesting all that's happening. You know, David, your place has been on my bucket list of places to go to for a while now. Next time I find myself in California visiting family, I would love to go and see it for myself. I remember one time, last time I was in California a few years back, I was just driving through that whole area and I forgot how tiny and cramped up the streets are. Like, I I was like, I want to pull over and take a picture of this place, but I can't because there's somebody behind me and I got to go. Yeah, but the way the land up here, as far as the streets are concerned, a lot of them were built in the 20s. They were actually bored into the mountainside. And in a lot of cases, the streets were never widened because they were paved. And unfortunately, it is literally navigating through the canyons up here. You get little fingerling streets that are literally no wider than maybe a, a width of a two widths of a car wide. So in most cases, people don't have anywhere to park. So they'll park on one side of the street. So literally, you're going up a street that's basically so narrow that if there's oncoming traffic, you'll have to pull over to let them pass. Right. So yeah, that's the nature of this area in, in the hills here. <laughs> Especially up here in my driveway, it's not exactly a, a, a spacious, wide layout. It's a pretty narrow, two-tenths of a mile drive driveway that has been getting narrower and narrower with the success of rains we've had. We've had mudslides that have encroached upon the width of the streets up here. And it's more crazy now because of Clinton's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and the throngs of people. I mean, yesterday I saw at least 15 to 20 cars driving up and down the driveway through the day, the course of the day, and I was only outside maybe four or five times taking my dogs to go to the bathroom. Wow. And for me, it's like the movie came out a year and a half ago, and it's still going crazy as far as the interest of the people that are tourists coming up here to see the gate, to see where it all went down. And I'm fascinated because I saw the, the end of the movie and I'm going, this this has nothing to do with the reality of the story. Yet people are still driving up here to see the real life location where it all went down. And in some cases, people have asked me, where's where's the boy's house at? And it's like, huh? The one was with a swimming pool and the... Uh, the pane window leading out from the, uh, he goes, yeah, where's that house? He goes, not up here, kid. He goes, there's no houses up here, swimming pools, except for the Tate property at the end of the drive. Right. So kind of like <laughs> explaining to them that, no, that was a movie. That seemed real, but it wasn't. It wasn't real. It's not true. It's not accurate. Right. And it's kind of sad, because they're like, oh, no, it's not, I thought it was real. And it's like, no, that's not history. <laughs> well, so, David, let's talk a little bit about how, it came about you building a home right next door to Sharon Tate's property where the heinous murders took place. Well, it's not exactly next door. It's about four houses down from the where her where her house stood, where they lived. That was a that was a lark, as they would say. I got very, very, very fortunate in the fact that my father found this lot that was for sale for forty thousand dollars as a foreclosure. Hmm. Literally, the house was just something that, you know, turned out to be a bonus. My dad found the lot. We built the house. And three and a half years later, we finished it and I moved in. It was great. And it's been fun ever since. So that's really about it. You know, yeah. in a nutshell, it's just, it was a lucky break. It has nothing to do with the fact that I am a devotee or a fanatic for Sharon Tate or that I was 
I was looking for a place up here near the near the property where the Mersic place. None of that, none of that is at all accurate or true for my situation. Yeah. All I ended up doing was getting lucky to find a lot that was a foreclosure. It happened to be up here. My father was a builder and an architect and designer, and it's just one of those things of, of dumb luck or fate. Yeah. No, it's nice when things like that happen. And I know, as you mentioned earlier, the spirits are quiet now, but you do have hauntings happening at your own home. What type of things take place there, you know, that are just out of the ordinary? And when did you start to notice weird things happening in your house? Well, during the construction, and even before construction, I knew that there was stuff going on here. We bought the lot in January of 1999. My first cat, or my second cat, Arthur, passed away in March, I do believe, and we ended up burying him here on the property. And during that time was probably the very first experience when I felt like there was uniqueness. Hmm. Just a very uniqueness about this property and and just something that, that it was like, I would say the first interaction with the paranormal took place on that day when, that I knew for certain that there was something strange about this property. And that's when we were burying him, my friend and I, Sean, as we were lowering him into the, the makeshift grave and covering him with the dirt, I said I felt this kind of like sense of buoyancy, like we were not alone. Hmm. And I felt like I was like, like the, the, the people there around us. It wasn't just, I wasn't alone with just Sean and I there bearing Arthur. I felt like we were surrounded by a group of people. And we're like 15, 20 feet down the side of the hill from the street. And we're holding a rope to do it because we literally rappelled down the slope of the hill to, to do this, to put him there. And I said, Sean, I said, I have this strange feeling like, like there's a bunch of pallbearers here with us and funeral, you know, guests with us honoring Arthur's were burying him. Uh-huh. And he, I said, it's, it's uncanny. I said, I just feel like I like turn to my left and my right and I feel like they're, I'm like looking at people that I can't see. I can feel their presence though. And Sean says, you know, that's kind of strange. I didn't want to say anything to, you know, break up the moment, but I was feeling the same exact thing. <laughs> Incredible. And I said, son of a goddamn. And I said, you know, I feel really like this is the right thing to do. And it's, I just said, that was it. And after during the construction, like, you know, months and months later, when we were working on the property and the house was going up with the framing, I kept on remembering walking around the property and just feeling like every now and then there'd be somebody walking up behind me to tap me on the shoulder to ask me a question, and I would, you know, turn around because I'd feel the presence of somebody behind me, and I'd say, yeah, what? And there'd be no one there. And as it turns out, I wasn't the only one that was feeling that. Six months before we were done with the construction, I assembled the laborers, the five of them, who were between the ages of 16 and 35, if anyone had had any strange experiences during the past couple of years working on the house. And one guy tells me, yeah, I'm on the third level about six months ago working on the, uh, I'm doing some work and I hear voices and footsteps coming from the top floor. Oh. So I go to the, I go to the stairwell and I go walking up to the top floor and saying, David, Senior Paul, what's going on? And he goes, I go and I look for the whole top floor and there's no one there. He then goes out onto the driveway and he looks up and down the street. And he says, I look up and down the driveway. There's no one there. There's not a single car. I said, what time of the night was this? He says, day. And he goes, it's about 6 p.m. I said, in the middle of summer? I said, 
No one gets home. The house is all streets empty until about seven. I said, I've been up here and the place is vacant. It's all, you know, quite lit up. It's still light. He goes, yeah, that's what I understand. So I go downstairs and I start packing my bags. I mean, I start working again. And five minutes later, again, voices and footsteps from the top floor. <laughs> so he goes, runs upstairs again. And he looks and he says, there's no one there. He goes, that's it. He goes, I'm, I'm done. I'm going back and getting out of here. So he goes downstairs. He starts packing his bags. And he says, about five minutes later, not even, he hears footsteps, leather-soled shoes hitting the wooden planks that make up the spiral staircase, and they're getting louder and louder and louder, getting to the, finally getting to the bottom of the landing. He comes out and he looks at the bottom landing. He's 15 feet away from him. He goes, what the fuck? There's no one there. <laughs> then it happens. This ice-cold breeze comes whizzing across the back of his neck. As he describes it, it's like a two-inch band two-inch wide band of ice that's literally going to going across the back of his neck above his shoulder blade below his spine on his neck and he says it's so cold all of the fucking hair pardon me all of the hairs on his body stand straight up and he screams out a dos mios a dos mios yummy boy yummy boy hmm. which oh my god oh my god I'm leaving I'm leaving and he said and I said wait a second that's when you were off the job site for some six weeks. And he goes, uh-huh. I said, no, I remember you You told them, the, the other laborers here, the other guys, that you were taking care of your sick mother in San Salvador that was, that was so ill you had to go down south of the border to take care of her. He goes, yep. I said, so what's the truth? Where were you? He goes, I was working another job. I said, oh, my God. I said, I remember because you were putting in the tile in the master bathroom. And you hadn't gotten around to it yet, and I was waiting for you. And after the first two weeks, I said, that's it. We don't know when he's coming back. I'll do it myself. <laughs> and I ended up giving it a shot. Let me give everybody a little bit of advice. <laughs> Just because somebody is doing a trade, and you come upon it, and you look upon it as a novice, and say, oh, God, it looks so easy. Don't be fooled. Because something about, you know, doing a repetitious Doing a job repetitively gives you a sense of understanding and how to cut corners and how to make it look easy, even though it's only because you've been doing it for years and years. It's like second nature. Just because somebody else is, a, is an expert at something doesn't mean just because it looks easy that you think you can do it, you should give your shot and try it. And especially, especially not on a construction site on a home that you're going to live in or that you're going to sell sometimes. Don't do it because yeah. the cost of what you're going to attempt and how it's going to come out is going to be so bad. And unless you're trained in that profession, it is usually a lot easier to look at somebody doing it than it is to actually do what they're doing. And I found out the hard way. <laughs> I didn't know anything about laying tile. Yeah. I didn't know anything about that. And I didn't know anything that, that there's a difference between natural tile, which is stone, and man-made tile, which is usually out of clay or porcelain. And I didn't know any of this. So when it came to putting in the tile, not only did I not know, but how to install them and how to make them leveled out. To this day, 18 years later, I've got proof of my story that people laugh at and say, oh, you're full of... So I know you think I'm lying. Come with me down to my master bathroom. We'll first take a tour of the entire house. And we'll look at all the rooms. And we'll look at all the bathrooms in the kitchen. You come to the master bathroom, you look at the tile, and you go, 
wait a second. What's what's with this? What? Why did some of the tile look like they're a little closer between tiles than others? It's like you took a, a jigsaw puzzle and you put down the pieces where you wanted and didn't decide they needed to go fit into one another and match. They just were put down on the on the ground on the board like who cares? Because the pattern that once was supposed to be with the original natural tile that we bought that we put into the master bathroom, the, the pattern got screwed because I didn't know there was a pattern to begin with. So I'm <laughs> taking tile out after tile out of the box and putting it into the floor. And I'm thinking, okay, I got these spaces. That'll make the difference. Yeah, once you push one tile down and try to get into place perfectly, of course, you're working with several, several, maybe 50 tiles. And there's like five tiles across and then 20 tiles going down or 15 tiles going down. Yeah, you try to make that happen and even them out and make them all level, it doesn't work. And I found out the hard way. So when people say to me, I don't believe your story, I say, here, come with me to the bathroom bathroom, look at the pile and tell them what you think. And then look and they go, you wouldn't have done this to make a point, would you? And it's like, would I? Would I have done this? Would I have done a 10000 or maybe a $30,000 disimprovement to my house to do this, to make a point? Said, of course not. I was an insufferable, stupid little putz who was <laughs> impatient, waiting for him. And when he still looked at the tile, he goes, "He just his his jaw dropped." He goes, "Yeah, you um, you did this, didn't you?" I said, "Uh huh." He goes, "It's too bad. It's too late. We can't do anything about it now. Otherwise, if it was me, your father would have me have my head and have me take out all the tile and redo it." Because, but that's not going to happen. So, wow. today it's messed up. That was like the high point of the experience of the construction because to have guys here between the ages of 16 and 36 that had no knowledge of the Sharon Tate murders to begin or end with, that had no understanding of what took place some 35 years or 33 years earlier in this area. It was just amazing because it was like having virgin olive oil that was just crushed out of the olive oil press and knowing that this is pure, perfect, untouched, unfettered, unmolested, pure, uncontaminated responses from these guys that didn't know anything about the murders. Yeah. So to me, it was it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe these guys are really telling this, because I know what I had felt during the three and a half years during the construction of the house. But to have somebody else validate that I wasn't the only one was wonderful. And what's funny is, after I moved, I'd say about a couple years after I was here, I had the experience of hearing the voice, or hearing a voice, a disembodied voice, in the third level, the same room that he was in, uh, with a date, we were watching um, White Chicks, and in the middle of the movie, I started hearing this guy's voice, coming, the, the sound of man talking, hmm. echoing, coming down the stairwell into the third level theater room. And I said to my date, I said, you know, uh, hold on, let me go in the other room and get the phone. Because I figured it was the telephone that's gone off and somebody's leaving a message. I pick up the telephone that goes to the answering machine and there's a dial tone. And I'm thinking, oh, uh, he must have just stopped talking when I got in here and hung up. Yeah. So I pick up the other extension that rings to the uh, the voicemail box. And I called the phone that's going to the to the uh, answering machine in the house, and I hear ring, ring. And I go, wait a second. I didn't hear any ring, ring. What the hell is that? 
So I go back in the room to my date, and I said, um, did you hear, what did you hear? She goes, I heard a guy talking. I said, okay. I said, hold on, I'll be right back. So I went upstairs, I go through the entire house, look at all the windows, the windows are closed. I look at the answering machine, no messages. I look at the caller ID, the last call that came in was four hours earlier, except for the phone call that I had made a couple minutes earlier to double check and see who it was. Yeah. Wow. And I go, oh God, oh dear God. And it's middle of March and the, how the winds are howling and it's nice and chilly outside. So there's no chance that I have one of the windows open on the side of the house, letting air in and this and that. So I'm thinking, okay, that's great. And I start going, there's something strange I have to figure the hell out here. So I say to my date, I come back down, I say to the date, well, what did you hear? And she goes, what do you mean, what did I hear? I said, what did you hear? And she goes, uh, I heard a guy talking to somebody, and he was um, communicating and having a conversation with somebody. I said, that's what I heard. And she goes, what do you mean that's what you heard? I said, that's what I heard. And she goes, wait a second. I said, look, I just spent the past five minutes going through the house from top to bottom, and all the windows were closed, the house is nice and tidied up, and I can't explain why the hell there's a man's voice communicating to somebody that's on this house. They said, oh yeah, I said, by the way, I checked the uh, the telephone. I said, did you hear the telephone ring before you heard the guy speaking? She goes, no. I said, neither did I. And she goes, what do you mean, neither did you? I said, um, no answering machine messages, no telephone calls, nothing. <laughs> and she freaked out. She goes, do you mean to tell me I heard a guy, and I said, wait, I said, describe him. She goes, Caucasian, late 20s, early 30s, no accent. It was a, it was a definitely a male. I said, yeah, that's what I heard. And she goes, no, 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 no. She goes, do you mean to tell me that what we heard was a voice that wasn't an answering machine message? I said, yeah, there was no She goes, that's it. I'm out. She took off. Oh, no. <laughs> and never came back. I never spoke to her again. She goes, that's wow. it. I'm done. Jeez. And I'm like... Wow, 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 <laughs> I guess she I wasn't the one, David. <laughs> yeah, the one to put up with that stuff, huh? <laughs> oh. Yeah, so any ideas of who that man could have been? Nope, no idea whatsoever. I yeah. couldn't figure it out. I kept on just, just you know, just I heard it. I know that then she heard it, but, you know, to talk to her about it ever again, I never... I never will be able to, kind of thing. Right. It was definitely clear as a bell that it was somebody talking to somebody in a conversation, but we only heard one side of it. So, yeah. Unfortunately, it was what it was. And then a couple months later, I was in bed at eight in the morning, and I heard the footsteps in the living room, which is the floor above us, above me in my bedroom, footsteps walking across the floor. With the alarm on, with the with the door to, the door at the front door totally locked, with the sensors on, and none of that was tripped, and the front door was never unlocked. So <laughs> some spirit was walking across the ceiling in my bedroom, which is this which is the floor for the, the living room above it, and I heard the, the footsteps, and I was like, oh my god, I've now heard the voice, and I've now heard the footsteps, 
And since then, I haven't really had much experience with them. Other people have had described the sound of footsteps walking across the floor in front of them or down the side staircase, but me, just that one experience was the only time I actually personally firsthand heard the sound of the footsteps walking hmm. throughout the house. So to me, personally, I'm kind of like going, hmm. So you let me know that this stuff is real, but you're not willing to freak me out and go out of, on a limb and try to scare me. It's okay that I understand that you don't have to go out of your way to like go, hey, David, we're going to freak you out with this sound effect. What do you think of this? And it's like, uh, all right, been there, done that. It's okay. Because <laughs> it's kind of like it's tempered. I'm tempered and so accustomed to it. If something happens. I just take it with a grain of salt and go, all right, that's cute. Next. Because... Uh oh, I think Wait. I. Oh, okay, there you are. It was getting choppy for a second. Oh, it must have been the spirits because I haven't moved an inch. <laughs> See, they're there. They miss you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> they're like, ah, he's doing a podcast where many will be listening. Maybe we should let ourselves be known again. <laughs> I, again, like I was going to say, the spirits have a way of, of messing around with stuff to just say, hey, we're here, even though you don't think. And it's kind of funny. Think about what I was just saying in the conversation, content of the conversation, when that happened. I said, they generally leave me the hell alone because I'm kind of like, uh, no big deal. I've seen that. I've heard that. All right, next. What's the next one? What's right. the next goose that you're going to pull? And it's like, okay. Let's play with the telephone right now so he knows we're, we're tapping into what he's saying and letting him know, okay, it might not freak you out, but we're going to play with the telephone let you know that we're quite still present. Right. Genius. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, guys. Much appreciate it. Good to know you're still here and not on, on 100% lockdown vacation, you know. You guys can, can do what you like. No one's going to stop you. You can go outside the house. You're not locked down, you know. Right, absolutely. Jeez, right. I think they took it to heart. Uh, well, you know, speaking of resident spirits and stuff and spirits being there, I know from our last conversation, David, that you were talking about the spirit of an Indian, if I remember correctly, right? Yep. Talk about that. That really interested me. Well, let's see. God, it's got to be about 14 years ago when I was first on the show Ghost Hunters. Lisa Williams, the famous English psychic, called me up or got in touch, and I think she sent me an email out of the blue and requested that she was able to get um, admission to come here to the house and see it. And I was like, Lisa Williams? I said, this is the Lisa Williams from the team. She's like, yes. I said, what? I said, I'd be more than happy to show you the house, please. So she says, do I pay? I said, no, I don't charge. Charge for what? To come visit my house? <laughs> I, said, it'll be, I said, it'll be an honor to have you come here to see it for yourself. I'd much appreciate it. And Lisa came over. She explained she saw the show, the episode of Ghost Hunters. I think it was in 2006. And she says, I'm just fascinated by your house. I'm just so curious. So during the this is during the daytime as well. This isn't like a nighttime investigation. Her and her manager show up at about one o'clock in the afternoon, I do believe, and they went through the house. And Lisa walks in, takes about ten steps, and stops at the, uh, the going into the living room from the dining room. There's two steps that go into the dining room area into the den. 
and she stops there and she turns and she's doing a scan of the room and she looks from left to right and she then stops and she's staring into my bar and the den. I'm like, she's staring at the bar. I was like, what's the matter? She goes, she goes, do you know you have a big party in your bar and in your den? I'm going, huh, what? <laughs> I start squinting my eyes and I'm starting to like look and go, all right, um, uh, what am I missing? And I'm trying so desperately to see what is there. And I'm not seeing a gosh darn thing. And I say, uh, I can't see it. She goes, oh. She goes, I'm sorry. She goes, well, I see Sharon and Jay. And I'm like, all right, Sharon and Jay from down the street. And she goes, and Rudolph Valentino's there. And I'm going, all right, so his house is across the canyon, some 500, maybe 1,000 feet, okay. And she goes, there's some Native Americans that are huddled together away from the, from the rest of the people. And she goes, it looks like they're standing around a campfire and they're all talking. And I'm like, uh-huh. And she goes, then there's some other people I don't recognize. And I'm like, you don't recognize them? And I'm thinking, hmm, you don't recognize them because you recognize Jay and Sharon. <laughs> and you know what happened at the end of the street. So I assume you know the players of those people that had died at the end of the street. And if you're not recognizing them, then... They are not the people that died at the end of the street. And the Native Americans that she's describing have nothing to do with the people at the end of the street. As right. far as I know at this time. And I'm like, what? And she goes, yeah, because they're, they're all having a great time. And she goes, they want me to tell you something. I said, yeah, what? And I'm starting to get like thick in the head trying to figure out my fingers around what she's saying to me because I can't see any of it. So I'm having to go by faith on yeah. what she's saying. And she says to me this, and I'll never forget it. They want me to, this is a quote from her. She goes, they want me to tell you that they really appreciate you, you know, you letting them stay here. And I go, huh? <laughs> so I literally started, like, like, got a little nervous going, what? I said, well, look, I said, I've seen the pictures uh, from the LAPD photo archives of how Sharon and Jay and the Abigail Wojcik and Stephen died. I said, God forbid, far be it from me to add insult to injury to, to making their afterlife even worse by adding this heaping pile of crap on top of it. I said, no, I said, I, I will not do that. I said, I will not make, their, make add insult to injury. And she looked at me and she then looked back to there and she, comes, she looks back and she goes, well, that's, that's, what they, that's why they said what they said about you because you really, you're special in that regard. That's what they like about you, your hospitality, and you're allowing them to stay here. And I said, I said, Lisa, and I remember saying this, I looked at her straight on, dead, dead pan, and I said, look, I said, I'm just a human being. I said, I'm human. I said, they're spirits. I can't do anything. I can't tell them where to go and what to do. I said, that's just, I said, I don't have that power. I said, so what, and what am I going to do? Tell them to get lost? I said, look, when I die at some point in the future, I don't want to, you know, I said, I don't want to get to the other side on the plane of existence and have them say, hey, there's that son of a bitch, David Omen. Do you remember <laughs> when he kicked us out of his house? What an SOP. And I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my gosh on eternal life, get my ass kicked around from here to eternity. I said, no. I said, I'm never, I wouldn't do that. I said, you know, I said, I might live. I said, even if I live to be 100 years old. I said, how long is eternity? So what is it, one-tenth of one percent of my existence is on this plane of existence, yet 
I'm going to spend the rest of it 10,000 times longer on that plane. I said, I want to pad my landing so that I have friends on the other side. And she laughed, and she goes, well, that's what they like about you, <laughs> that, you, that, you that you think of. I said, hey, you know, I said, I'm just, just putting it out there that in case there is an afterlife, which I believe there is, I don't want to get my butt kicked for being a prick on this plane. And she laughed. She thought it was so, because nobody thinks outside the box. They all think about, well, this is where I am now. Not future, but right now, here in the now. And it's like, well, that's great, but here in the now when you're dead is here on the other side with them, and I don't want to be, you know, crucified for it. And that's, and that's honestly the truth. That is how I feel about it to the very day. I feel like, you know, what am I going to do? Why would I do anything to impede their their lives? It makes no sense. It doesn't work. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't make me a better person for it. Right, absolutely. And that's awesome that you do that. I mean, as obviously it's appreciated by them, too, that they have this, like, safety haven, this, like, place that they know yeah, that they're welcome at. And you also have somebody there. I remember you, we were talking about how... Several mediums throughout the years, you know, have come over and had conversations and they've always picked up on this, like, Native American on a horse or something. Horseback. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, <laughs> thank you for redirecting us back to the square we were at. <laughs> um, well, Lisa, as I was saying about Lisa, I didn't finish, but when Lisa was here, so Lisa goes down to the third, goes to the house, and she ends up in the earthen wall room, which a lot of people don't understand how that came to be. The house sits on a, on a hillside, and as you go down the slope of the hill, you can put, you have walls that basically are behind, that protect or don't show you behind the walls where the, where the earth is. Well, <laughs> on the third floor, we have the air conditioning unit that was supposed to go in on that third floor level, and we never put it in. And what happened was, is there's a platform that's right next to the earth underneath the house, and there's this, as you say, a space that is there still, untouched. And it's like you walk into this room and boom, there it is, the hillside's right there in front of you. And mm. we never put up the wall that, put, that hid the mound of earth behind that because when my father and I were constructing the house, my father was dead set on making the third level an apartment. And I said, no, Dad, we're not. And he goes, yes, we are. I said, no, we're not, and became a point of contention, excuse me, and my father said, look, either I put that gosh darn wall in and build this into a kitchenette and turn this floor into an apartment, he says, or, and he was serious, he goes, I'll leave it the hell alone. <laughs> I said, you know something, Dad, if that's, if that's the choice I have, then I will take the choice that you're offering. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I don't want an apartment, and if you're telling me we don't put the apartment in, we don't get the, the kitchenette, so be it. And he was like, oh, you did not. I said, oh, yes, I did. It was <laughs> fine, because I don't care. We'll leave it in then. And we left it. <laughs> and my father was so upset Aww. by the simple fact that I would never acquiesce. We never did, and he says, how's that kitchenette? I said, the kitchenette? What kitchenette? I didn't put it in. I don't care. And it was just, it became a pissing match, and of course, at the time, there was no way I was going to have turned this into an apartment with access into the main house, because they said to him then, I said, what if somebody's in the apartment and it's not the owner, 
not to rent her and something said, they want to get into the main house because they'll go stay up the stairs. I said, then we're not doing it. I said, that's not an apartment. That's, that's a gateway to an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. And that's what happened. Nothing. So I think five years ago, I finally had some money available and I decided to put the kitchenette in. So now there's the kitchenette, but there's still no, no wall behind the earthen wall. The earth is still there exposed. So to this very day, you can come into the house and go into that room and see it just like it was, you know, 20 years ago, about 18 years ago when we finished the house. That the only exception is, is after Zach Baggins was here with Ghost Adventures, I ended up widening the, the area from four feet to eight feet, so now that you have space to actually walk in there with a few more than two people at a time. No, that's uh, crazy, and I know uh, Zach and you go way back. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> No comment about that man. Man's an absolute, you know. To me, I don't, I don't believe a person that that's a paranormal investigator who could only last three hours in my house and then cry foul that I'm possessed and I'm somehow a poltergeist agent when I've lived here now 18 years and have had very little problems and have never, ever run away from a ghost. And I've even had some paranormal investigator troop groups such as the Hollywood Ghost Hunters which is Kane Hoder, who is basically Jason Boris from Friday the 13th, R.A. Mihailahoff, who is Leatherface from The Hills Has, Have Eyes, and um, Rick McCallum, who is another horror film actor who played a, uh, plays a lot of different roles in a lot of feature films as the heavy. Um, they were here, and they said their motto is, if you run away from a ghost, you are out of the group. Right, absolutely. That's pretty much it. I mean, and I, I, they've been here several times, and Rick said to me, he goes, look, if you're afraid of a ghost and you're running away from a ghost, you can't be a ghost investigator, because you got to be stopped, you got to be on your game. And being afraid and allowing fear to run you around and run you ragged means you just don't have it. You haven't got the capacity to deal with the paranormal, so what are you doing in the group? Right. And that's how I feel. Because spirits, unlike the television shows that we watch, that people are like, oh my God, it's a good ghost. It, that's that's <laughs> a cartoon. That's Cass's a friendly ghost routine. That's not how spirits act. Spirits don't come across the planes of existence to try to scare you and rattle some chains and say, oh, oh I'm here, I'm here. No, ghosts don't do that. They are trying to check up on you. They're trying to, to see what's going on. They're trying to just be there. They're not trying to go out of their way to scare you because, you know, you're in a Washington Irving novel about Sleepy Hollow. That just isn't true. Ghosts have better things to do with their afterlife than to scare you and get a rise out of the fact that they got to spook you. That's just nonsense. That's just that's not the way it works. I agree. You know, I've been investigating the paranormal for several years myself. Always have been a I've been a lifelong fan of the paranormal and supernatural. And it's hard for me to watch so many of those shows nowadays because it's like they not all of them, but there's a couple of them that, you know, they they go to a location and they get terrified and scream and cry and run the other way when they hear a sound or hear a voice. And I'm like, me, 
my my I get that adrenaline. I love that. That's what I'm there for. I'm there to get that evidence, you know? And so but I, I couldn't agree more with you when it comes to that stuff, David. But I know you've had so many different TV shows and reality yeah. shows and well known people go in and out of your house. Uh what are some of your most memorable moments? Well, let's see, the six shows we've had out here, two of them were the parent were investigator shows, which was Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters. Um, otherwise, my ghost story, paranormal witness, haunted history, and aftershocks were all, for lack of better words, were story-based review shows where they would review footage and stories of other people, but they wouldn't do an investigation. Hmm. Um, so of, of the two shows that did the investigations here, I remember, obviously, Ghost Hunters was funny because it was, it was the first time that anybody had actually come here for, for a TV show to do an investigation here. And of course, with the notoriety of, of uh, Jason Hawes and Grant Wilson, I mean, that was like a high point to have them here and go through the house. And what was funny was, is when we were reviewing footage, they were um, at the top of the stairs in the beginning of the episode, and they heard some crazy sound coming from the kitchen. And they go in there, and they thought it was the ice maker that was, was, was going off. And I, you know, during the review, I explained to them, said, the ice maker? He goes, yeah, the ice maker. He goes, let me show you what the ice maker is. So I opened up the freezer, and literally where the ice maker device and machinery was, was pulled out because it had malfunctioned some months earlier. So I said, look, if it isn't going to work, I'm not going to waste the space of having big clunker piece of equipment in there. I pulled it out. Yeah. So I went in and I said, I said, well, I said, there's what the ice maker would be if I had the ice maker working in the freezer. And they looked at me and goes, no, 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 no. I said, what do you mean? No, 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 no. He goes, we had the strangest experience during the show and we'll show you when we, you know, when we come back to do the review, but we had this. And I watched when they, when they, when they came back and they asked me the questions, and they showed me the fridge. I said, yeah, that's the ice. He goes, we want that on camera. because you explained to us that the, the ice maker's broke. And I said, okay. So we, re- we did that part of the show where we did the review of the footage. I said, yeah, the ice maker's broken. And it doesn't even, isn't even in the machine, in the freezer. And they were like, uh... And the other funniest time was obviously during Ghost Adventures was when Zach walked out of the house after being here for maybe an hour and a half. And the, the start of the show is even funnier because they were here for three, for four days shooting. And the first day is the interview with me. The second day of shooting is the interview with other people in the house or interviews with other people throughout the house. The third day was the B-roll and was it was B-roll shooting and footage and stuff and just getting footage of the house and the ethereal Sharon Tate ghost figure that was it was in the mood in the show and the third the fourth day of course is the actual lockdown so Zach and the boys don't get to come up here till the very last day and I got to meet Zach and I talked to him you know it was like you know, you know I don't I'm not even going to go into the detail of what what took place and what the conversation was because that's for some other show but they basically started the lockdown they said look we're going to do a six hour lockdown we're going to start at nine o'clock we're going to go to 3 o'clock, and then we're going to wrap up. I said, okay, that sounds good. 3 o'clock, whatever, wrap up. So he says to me, the producer says to me, he goes, look, he goes, dancing you want to do, you know, in the, in the house before we uh, start rolling. So I go in the house, 
I said, yeah, let, let me go. Let me get in there first before I hand it over to you. <laughs> I go to the top of the stairs in the living room, and I look down the stairwell, and I start, start with a terse voice saying, Spirits, I know you're awfully, awfully, awfully upset. Oh, yeah, that's right. The night before, they shoot B-roll, but they also shoot the reenactments. Uh. So one of the reenactments that they shot, which I forgot to mention, was the fact that they had this story that Sharon Trey Fordham was here with a group, and she explains that she came up with her mom a few months earlier to see the house, and as she drives up the driveway, she enters the driveway, and she sees a bloody, pregnant Sharon Tate walking down the driveway towards her. And she describes her as pregnant, covered in blood, and clutching her pregnancy. Mm. At which point I said, that's what you're going to do a reenactment of? I said, I don't think so. I, yeah. I think that's bad taste. I don't believe the story. I just don't believe the story. And they said, well, look, that's the reenactment we're going with. That's the story, blah, 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 blah. And we're going to do it. And I said, well, do it all you like. But I am very, very, very disheartened. And I think that it's exploitive. I think it's disrespectful. Right. And I said, furthermore... I don't know how it's going to float across the ethereal highway. And they said, well, blah, 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 blah. we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> so on Thursday night, the night, the third night that they're there and they're shooting, they basically do the event. They do the shoot. And I'm like, I'm not happy about this. And oh, yeah. I start taking pictures. And I'm not supposed to be taking pictures. But I'm on the side of the house taking pictures, and I then get up under the street, and I start taking pictures of this actress. And in the slew of pictures, there's one photograph that stands out, where all of a sudden, in the frame, from her stomach is this ball of white light coming right out. And I'm like, I'm looking over the pictures, and I said, wait a second. There's no light behind her. There's a, there, she's dressed in a white nightgown, she's covered in blood, and she's clutching this, this balloon under her stomach, I mean, under the, uh, the, the uh, nightgown, in her stomach area that fakes the, the pregnancy. And I said, wait a second, they have three big lights in front of her, lighting her up. If you put a light behind her and the camera's shooting at the light, and it peers around her, it'll blind the camera so you won't see anything. So I said, oh, my God, and I double-checked, and I looked at hers. There's nothing on her dress that's reflective. The nightgown is just a simple, sateen, white nightgown. There's nothing. So I looked at all the pictures, and there's just one picture, and it's like a round ball of brilliant color light just pouring right out of her stomach. And I said yeah. to the producers, they said, I'm getting the sickest feeling, because at the same time I'm feeling my, my sensitivities were going up. I was thinking, oh, my God, I feel... I, I'm getting this like vibe of anger and rage and unhappiness and and this this just terrible feelings of like betrayal and hatred and anger. And I said to them, when you guys, I said to them, I said, when you guys go shoot tomorrow night, I have a bad feeling about this investigation. I said, I don't know. I said, I've never felt this before, so this is new to me. Mind you, I've only lived in the house for about five or six years at this time. So I'm sitting there going, okay, all right, fine. It's their show. Let them do it. So the night they're shooting it at 9 o'clock, right before they start shooting, 
I go to the top of the stairs and I start yelling at the spirit, saying, I know that you're upset. I know that you're pissed. I know that you can't stand these people. I know you feel betrayed and, and hurt. I said, I don't want anyone physically harmed. I said, I don't want anybody walking, running out of here with a cut or any broken bones or anything. I said, I don't and won't allow that. And of course, I'm bluffing because what power, what what type of, how should I say, what type of... Um, control? What can I do? What, what, what kind of control can I exert over them? Yeah. To not, to be respectful and not be malicious and angered and vicious with them. So then as I walk, come back out the house, the executive producer comes in and goes, what the hell was that? I said, um... It was my way of trying to assert some type of control and force that you would be, like, that you and your crew and your cast would be okay. And he goes, no, 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 because I want you to do it again. I said, what? Oh, jeez. I said, that wasn't an act. He goes, no, no, I want you to do it again for camera. He goes, and I want you to do a G-rated version of it. And I said, all right, fine, fine. <laughs> So they go and they have me do that, and then they, they get me out of the house, and they start, they're start they getting ready to start the shoot. Well, um, one little problem. All the equipment failed. And they said to me, because uh, we have a problem. I said, what's wrong? Because we've got a problem. I said, I've never had this happen before, he said. I said, well, because all the equipment's dead. I said, well, because all the batteries are completely done. I said, what about the backup batteries in the van? He goes, no, they're all drained. And then I looked at him, and I said... I said, and so it begins. And they're like, what? And I said, nothing, nothing. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's good. You've done yourselves a favor. <laughs> you, you, you stirred up a gosh darn hornet's nest, and now you got to deal with it. Right. Jeez. And then, and then all the shit hit the fan. When they were here, they're doing their investigation halfway through at about 1130. Zach comes walking out of the house because they started at 10 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock because all the equipment had to be recharged. And um, they go and say to me, okay, we're, gonna, we're, we're doing the investigation. I said, great, how's it going? He goes, um, Zach's got a problem. I said, what do you mean? And, and I said, next thing I know is that I see Zach walk out of the house and fall down onto the concrete pavement in front of the house. And I'm like, whoa, what the hell? So I run up to him because I'm going outside right next to him. And I said, are you okay? And then the executive producers come running over and saying, Zach, Zach, are you okay? And he's sitting there with doing, his eyes were literally spinning around in his head. <laughs> and I'm like, are you okay, man? He goes, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, my head's killing me. Oh, my God, I'm feeling sick. I don't know, man. I don't know. Oh, God, I don't know. And so then they got to Zach, and there are no cameras there around him, and they're just talking to him, and he's, like, getting his bearings straight, and... They start going back in, and the next thing you know is, is there's a problem with Nick. There's a problem, so they send Nick downstairs, which is the famous incident that takes place in the third level. He goes down, and I'm upstairs. I'm supposed to be in the in my tr in my truck, waiting, watching, watching from a distance. And I'm like, I'm not doing any of that. So I go out, and I'm walking around the garage, and Jay Wozley is there, and. He says that they just sent, they just sent Nick downstairs to do something. You know, they're having some problems. They want to make him make him the point man to go investigate. And I'm like, okay. So then I go and I look and I see Zach, Aaron, and um, Jay Wozley in the back seat of their uh, minivan, looking at the monitor. 
and they're sitting in the back seat, and they start hearing, you know, Nick's having his problems with the spirits down there. And I'm, you can hear, you know, on the, on the mic, on the speakers, you can hear Nick talking and watching them on, watching him on the monitor. And all of a sudden, Nick starts getting his voice starts getting cracky, like going, "Oh, problems! It's not good! It's not good!" So then he starts having his meltdown. And I'm going, oh no. I said, what the hell's happening down there? So I'm watching the monitor and Nick's having himself a time. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it, and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I don't know if he's actually experiencing something or if he's bringing it into his mind and he's making it up in his mind, so to speak. That he's, that he's in the house and he's so over primed or preened to being so scared of the paranormal activity in the house that it's kind of like wearing on his psyche. And he starts having his meltdown. He starts screaming and saying, you know, Nick, and he says, Aaron and Zach, get your asses down here. And of course, this is, you only see bits and pieces of what actually took place on the show. This is going on for around five minutes. On the show, you may see like, it, it seems like it's going on for a minute. Uh-uh, it was going on. And I'm like going, <laughs> Zach, why aren't you going? He goes, no, no, let him go, let him go. It's good, it's good, it's great footage. It's, he's like, no, it's, it's good, this is great. This, and I'm starting to get irritated. And I'm going, you know, if that's me and I'm in his shoes and I'm down there in some strange location that I'm having a meltdown with, whether or not I'm physically actually experiencing it or, if, or I'm actually making it up in my mind, it doesn't matter. For all practical purposes, in his mind, it's real. It's a threat, and he's having to deal with it, and he can't deal with it. Yeah. And I'm sitting there listening, looking at the three of them, and they're cracking up, and Zach is, like, cracking. He goes, oh, look at that, because he's having a meltdown. <laughs> oh, jeez. And I'm like... That's horrible. I, I, it broke. It just... I broke. I said, if you don't get your ass down there and send somebody down there to bring him up, I said, I don't give a goddamn about this stupid contract I signed with you. This is my house. This is on my watch. I don't let anybody suffer for any for any reason whatsoever, let alone the fact that I'm watching it, watching you guys react to it, and you guys are just cracking up, thinking this is so funny. I said, and then Zach knew that I was serious, and he goes, okay, 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 let's go. Come on, come on, we got to go out there and get him. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I was counting the seconds that going by going, how much longer does this guy have to sit there and have this problem? How much longer does this guy have to sit here out in the limb with his friends sitting him out? I said, that's it. So then they finally went down, they brought him upstairs, and poor Nick was just having a time of it with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a shame. That's It's interesting. See, you right there gave us kind of like a behind-the-scenes what people don't see the whole thing. And I used to watch that show... A long time ago and I you know I haven't watched it for a few years now but what I have noticed in the past episodes is that if Zach is in trouble they run to his beck and call but if somebody else is Zach wants to wait it out like it's not him he's safe he wants to kind of wait it out and that's not okay I you know I I have my team paranormal prowlers that I'm very proud of and their family to me some of them are family members and if I see one in distress or upset or something we're there for each other we help each other out you know you don't wait for them to break down you know that's 
that's just sad. I'm glad you stepped in for him. You know, I'm glad you stepped up and said, no, that's not okay. Oh, well, yeah, look, I don't, to me, that's something I had to take personally because it's yeah. my home. And my responsibility is to protect people that come to my home regardless of what the pretense is that they're here for. It wouldn't matter. It's, like I said, I didn't give a rat's ass that I had a contract for them to shoot a show here. If somebody's going to get hurt on my watch and I have something to say about it, I will step in and throw the, the contract under the bus, so to speak, and protect that person because it's just something you can't do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so David, before we end today's episode... I wanted to give you a huge congratulations. So you're an author. Congratulations on your book, Ghost of Cielo Drive. Yeah, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about your book. I It's on my list of books to get. And, you know, since we're all kind of on house arrest right now uh, or quarantine, it is kind of, you know, the book list is growing and I'm always looking for new ones. So talk a bit about Ghost of Cielo Drive, The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the Spirits of the Omen House. Sure. The, the book <laughs> actually came about and was started some 15 years ago when um, I was actually writing this, this, my screenplay about my story in the haunted house here. But the book came about because so many different people have done their shows here and so many different investigators have visited here, and every one of them has come up with their own theory and their own story about my house. And the most, I'd have to say, the one that really stuck me in the eye, pushed me forward to make this book happen, was, was the infamous Zach Baggins. <laughs> I'm sorry, he made some, some very, very dishonest, for lack of better words, he lied through his goddamn teeth, as he likes to do, and likes to speak and make himself bigger than the story, the truth of the story, because... The truth just doesn't hold water for him. He needs it to be more grandiose, more, you know, bigger than life and make it out to be something that's not true. And that's what he did with this house. During the episode, as you watch, he says that the house is built on Native American ceremonial burial ground. That's a flat out, 100% not true lie. It's not an embellishment. It's a lie. There's, there's not even a shred of a thread or a shred of truth to anything of what he said. And this is really why I had it basically got down to brass tacks and put the book into effect and to write the story down so that people would know the truth. He was told when he was here that the Lisa Williams experience when she was here some 15 years ago, 14 years ago, and she had the experience when she told me about the Native American in the Mound of Earth. And she said to me, there's a Native American that's, that's died by accident when his horse lost its footing on the, on the trail that is now the driveway. He fell down the slope of the hill with his horse, and both the horse and the rider were killed. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, basically, when they fell down the hill, they broke their necks, and their remains were left on the side of the hill some 50 or 60 feet down from what is the driveway now. And the remains were left there and were covered through mounds of, through mudslides and earthslides and such and such that it was basically left there forever. Hmm. I said, okay, so I never told the story to anybody. Through the years, different psychics have come in the house and gone into that earth and wall room and have stopped and said to me, you know, there's a Native American on horseback in this earth 
under this house here. And I'm going, huh? And it's not like Lisa Williams was talking on talk shows about her experience here in the house and how she's publicizing it, making it, you know, public knowledge about this this supposed Native American here. So I kept it under my hat so that when different psychics would come in and tell me things and they'd hit that mark and say, oh my God, there's a Native American here, I'd sit there and go, oh my God, that's, that's, that's crazy. And I'm thinking, where did you come up? I'd ask them, say, where'd you come up with that? And most of the people think it's like, I can just feel it right here in the house and never reference Lisa Williams because she was never a reference point to begin with. So after years and years of not telling anybody, I finally decided to let the cat out of the bag when I did the show Ghost Adventures seven years ago. <laughs> and I kind of regret opening my mouth because once I told that truth to him, he turned it around and mishmashed it up and chopped it up and made it into a, a crap salad of David House has built a Native American ceremonial burial ground. And when you watch the episode, I tell the story. And then all of a sudden, the next scene is of, of Zach talking about, you know, you should never build your house in Native American ceremonial burial grounds. That's never a good thing. That's a big no-no. And I'm thinking, Jeez. what do you, 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 you took from Steven Spielberg's classic movie Poltergeist and turned that into fucking, freaking lore of the paranormal, which is just total bogus baloney. Yeah. What Spielberg did with that movie created a myth that people now to this day look at as a point of context of why paranormal activity, because you're building a burial ground. It's like, let's be honest here. Graveyards are not haunted. People hate me saying this, but I will say it till the day I die and express the truth that, look, here's the simple facts about a graveyard. You, as a human being, as a living being, have very little connection to a graveyard. Meaning, unless you work at a graveyard, unless you're a huge, huge, huge death hag, you're not going to spend but one-tenth of one percent of your life ever in a graveyard. Why? Because even if you were a person that went to a graveyard and said, I want to buy this plot of land, and you spent your life hanging out there at your plot of land, having, having picnics there, waiting for your, your death to a come upon you and you're going to be buried in that spot and you were just so in love with that spot that you spent, you know, waking hours of your day and your night visiting there, there's not a hell of a lot of connection for a person to be to a graveyard. Yes, you went there for a friend's funeral. Yes, you went to drop off flowers on the anniversary of that person's death. But unless you made it part of your life that it was just like I lived at the graveyard, there's virtually very little connection for a person's body, minus their spirit, which is what and where bodies go to in, in Western civilization. We bury our dead in a graveyard. That's the amount of contact. Your spirit, when your body goes into the earth, has been removed from that body for a number of days, if not weeks. Your body and you, when you die, separate instantaneously. You don't get to hang around watching your body go through all the processes of being embalmed and going through the autopsy. That just ain't the way it is. We don't have a connection, or an umbilical cord, between our body and our soul, which is really what people are trying to say when you say, oh, the, you know, that's why the ghost is hanging around the, uh, the cemetery, because think about it. What purpose does a, does a human being have to be hanging around their body when they're dead? 
None. It's it's you've you've left the body. That's what they say. Your your spirit leaves the body upon death. Well, you're not going to be living in a cruel type of a world where you're fo forced to sit there and watch your remains be autopsied or embalmed or then in, entered into the earth so that you can watch your earthly remains rot into putrid mess. That's just not the way it is. We don't do that. Our spirits go where our loved ones are, not where our body goes. So this is, this is all based upon what Barry Taft told me 15 years ago. He says, you know, it's just a repository for the earthly remains. Your soul and spirit have long since departed your body by the time you're entered into the earth. So what's the point? Why would it be that way? And I kind of said, you know, you make sense. because the only time the cemetery is going to be haunted is by those that were the mourners that couldn't let go of that person who had died and during their lifetime while they were alive was, were making repeated visits to the grave site, such as the famous story of the lady in, in black who would go to Rudolph Valentino's grave on the anniversary of his death and put a rose at his grave site. And then they said that after she died, her spirit was seen at on the anniversary of Valentina's death. They said they, they, they said that there would be a, an apparition of a woman in black who would go up to Valentina's grave and then would vanish. That makes sense. She was doing it when she was alive. It was like a, um, oh, for lack of better words, it was a, a pilgrimage that she would do on the anniversary while she was alive. She would go to his gravesite and she would do that repetition of every single year on that anniversary. So that when she died, her spirit would still be doing the same thing. It's like the mourner, the mourners would be able to come back to the gravesite if they were so entranced by that person. That makes sense because that's something they did when they were alive. It doesn't make sense that a ghost is going to come back to look at his grave and go pining and go pop his head into the you know, six feet down into the earth to see the casket, to see his earthly remains turn to bone or dust. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no connection anymore. Right. No, absolutely. Well, David, it was so awesome having you on. It's always so much fun chatting with you. Well, I appreciate you having me on again. And I'm sorry I didn't get much into the book. The book in a nutshell is just my story. It was just telling the story from my personal, first-hand experiences here from the construction of the house all the way up to the present day it includes different anecdotes and different uh, reports from different paranormal investigators that have been here through the years verbatim. I didn't want to get into changing their words, so I took some of the reports, and including Dr. Taft's reports that people are so curious and fascinated by. I put the actual three reports that were written up 15 years ago before any TV shows got here by Dr. Taft so people could look at the foundation upon which all of this is based upon because Barry, for lack of better words, is one of the few people that has the understanding and scientific knowledge of the paranormal so that when he came here, he laid the foundation and groundwork for future investigations for people to um, review and go, oh, wow. Wow, that's what he was getting. Wow, let's see if we can come up with those numbers on our instruments as well. So 
And Barry and I are still friends. I don't have any ill will towards Barry. He did a TV show with Zach and a couple of shows, and Zach, in his infamous editorial fashion, takes people's statements and works them into what he wants to express and convey. And that's fine. I have no ill will with Barry whatsoever. He's entitled to his opinion, as, as I am as well. So I just thought I'd put that out there so people would understand that I have no ill will towards Barry Taft whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What a neat guy, David Oman, and I always have a great time talking with him. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. All you have to do is go to any podcast platform, such as Apple Podcast, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Podcast Republic, basically wherever you go to listen to your other awesome podcasts, you will surely find Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. And this week's special city shout out goes to Las Vegas, Nevada, Johns Creek, Georgia, Arlington Heights, Illinois, Branchburg, New Jersey, and Fremont, California. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See you next week.